my happiness as a human being was completely wrapped up in my identity as Brian Lima, the heart surgeon. Who Brian Lima, you know, the normal person, the guy, I had no idea who that was. From Spa Dameron Tenney, it's the Prosperous Doc Podcast. Real stories, real inspiration, real growth. A show for doctors who are ready to improve their overall wellness in every aspect of life. Now here's your host, Shane Tenney. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast. I'm Shane Tenney, glad to have you with us today. And we're here today to talk about a range of topics from physician-patient relationships to artificial intelligence. Uh, yep, that's artificial, H-E-A-R-T. We'll come to that in a, in a minute, but I'm joined today with Dr. Brian Lima on the show. Dr. Lima is currently Associate Professor of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery, serves as the Director of Cardiac Transplantation at the Sandra Atlas Bass Heart Hospital in Long Island, New York, and as of this year, is the acclaimed author of uh, Heart to Beat. Uh, cardiac surgeons, inspiring story of success and overcoming adversity. So, Brian, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, just help us uh, make sure that we understand the current view from your chair. You're currently director of cardiac transplantation. Is your work now at Sandra Abbas patient focused? Are you more in management, overseeing physicians? What's the current lay of the land for you? And then we'll get into the backstory. Sure. It's very much patient focused. There are some, you know, administrative responsibilities that go along with it, but by and large, it's in the trenches, moment to moment, yep. you know, yep. every day. So. Dealing with uh, real cases and real COVID and real stress. Yeah, yeah, yep. absolutely, for sure. But of course, that's not what the basis of your book is all about. And I think that your story is what has really intrigued a lot of the folks that have been able to read your book, Heart to Beat. Rewind, whatever, 40 years and, and start with the beginning. What's the What's your personal story growing up and what's the story that uh, everyone needs to understand here? I grew up in New Jersey. I was the son of Cuban immigrants. So we were a working class family. My parents came over, my two older siblings, barely squeaking by. My dad worked in a factory. We only spoke Spanish at home. And so really the idea of becoming a doctor, you know, going to medical school, things like that, those were fantasies, really. But one thing I did have is the insight that my dad helped instill, and that is that work ethic, hard work can really make up for any limitations that you have, any shortcomings. So he kind of stoked that fire. He made me believe in myself that as long as I put in the work, that really nothing was out of reach. So it was with that mindset that then I was able to become valedictorian high school, nearly get a full ride to an Ivy League school, and then from there get a full ride to Duke for medical school, and then train for 10 years after medical school to become a heart surgeon that specializes in advanced heart failure, you know, transplanting hearts, mechanical heart pumps. And I've been out now nearly 10 years of training, and it's been a blast. It's been a lot of fun, stressful, but exhilarating at the same time. And Somewhere in there, decided to write a book <laughs> about my life. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, just to add a little something to the schedule to fill the quiet moments, right? Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> your father was really instrumental in your, your growing up lives, your outlook, your work ethic. I know you talk in, in the book or you quote him as, as saying that some people have a leg up, but victory is is not bestowed it's earned i think is is the quote yeah how old were you when you remember 
that actually meaning something to you and giving you inspiration? He had this way. I mean, we would have these kitchen table chats and he worked odd hours because he worked at a pigment factory. And so he would work overtime shifts and sometimes so it was random times of the day and it wasn't consistent. But whenever he had a chance, he just kind of felt like he needed to lay this on me, you know, just kind of school me on on what life was about. And it seemed very intense. But gradually, as these discussions kept occurring, it started building up this confidence. It hit home when finally at our eighth grade graduation ceremony, my closest buddy, who's also from an immigrant family, won all the awards. He got called to the stage a bunch of times. And I remember thinking, oh, this is terrible. I really blew it. I knew at that moment that I hadn't worked hard. I kind of was skating by. I just never was cognizant of, oh, yeah, we're going to actually be recognized for how little we do or how much we do. And it hit me at that moment like a ton of bricks. And I felt so ashamed because of all those lessons he had imparted. And so that there was like a switch that went off at that moment in time where I was like, okay, from now on, I'm going to always give my best effort. So that was a key mm-hmm. turning point. And somewhere 30 years later, it began to crystallize, I think, in this, this acronym you call artificial intelligence. Yes. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the phrase mean? So the book itself has many puns in it where I splice in the word heart in place of hard or things like that. And one of the areas that really defined my life and defined my path to get here was figuring out a way to make up for the fact that I was rarely, if ever, the smartest person in the room. I mean, I was outgunned big time (laughs) every step of the way. The only way I figured out to make up for that was to just outwork everybody, just put in more time and stick with it. And so that's sort of my artificial intelligence, kind of hard over matter. You can make up for what you lack in natural God-given talent with just pure work ethic. And many people won't do that. And even people that are much more talented than you will, will give up long before, you know. So that was key. And that's what artificial intelligence is. It's making up. It's, it's not fake, but it's, it's making up for what you lack in your mind with just heart, hard work. Right. And the heart stands for something in here. Right. So... The acronym, so H obviously is hard work. So it's where it all begins. E goes by different things. Entrepreneurship, having an entrepreneurial spirit, positive outlook, always trying to make the most of things. A is aligned, aligned with your moral compass, with your purpose. Always figuring, you know, knowing on a day, daily basis, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How does this, you know, mesh with your, the bigger goal, the bigger vision? R is being relentless, never giving up. And T is thoughtfulness, being mindful, being grateful, empathetic, always being aware of your emotions. It's that emotional intelligence that factors very importantly and also is spoken a lot about in the you know entrepreneurial literature. So that's how heart fits together. And as a heart surgeon, I thought it was a, a neat concept. And parallel that also with the fact that the heart just beats no matter what, you know, as long as you take care of your heart and you have a healthy heart, it's going to just keep going. It's going to be your ride or die. And I thought it was another interesting twist on this whole idea that no matter what happens, no matter what failure you come across, disappointment, as long as you just keep moving, get back on and just, just like your heart does, it just keeps moving. You know, that's it. That's half the battle right there. Yeah. You remind me as you described that, 
here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Of course, we got the Carolina Panthers. One of our all-star receivers for years was Steve Smith. Yes, Steve Smith. A beast of a receiver, about 5'9", and he would tell folks, I may not be the biggest guy on the field, but nobody is out going to work Steve Smith. And he always referred to himself in third person, too, which added to the punch. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's good. You were sharing at the beginning that your role in the cardiac transplant group is patient focused and you're, you're in the OR and you're doing work, you know, doctor patient times together are increasingly a precious commodity, just given the the demands of all that needs to be done more and more that needs to be jammed on the schedule. I'm curious, do you have things that you do or things that you're aware of you do that help you to connect with really critical patients in a crisis time in limited time? Or did you have things that you suggest to other colleagues? Hey, man, you know, I know you only got 15 minutes, but ask this or think about this or whatever to help you as you connect with people. Because I know just the patient interaction is real key to your focus and what you try to do. Sure. I do everything possible to, number one, break things down into simple language that anybody can understand and try to limit the amount of jargon that I use just to make it simple. Because often I'm talking about some pretty heavy duty stuff, life and death stuff. You know, by the time they get to me, that means by and large, we've exhausted all conventional medicine, conventional heart surgery. We're talking now about, okay, we might have to replace your heart in some way. <laughs> That's a huge consideration, shock many times for them, for family. So I also do everything I can to make sure I involve family in the discussion because sometimes I may be talking, but not much of it may be registering. And so having a family member there who can also help keep a tally of you know, the magnitude of what I'm talking about. So I make sure family's around. I give my cell phone out. It's on my business card. Some people criticize me for that. I just feel like, hey, this is uh, when I connect and commit to a patient and their family, it's for life, literally. I feel like if I can help them believe that I'm really invested, they're not just another patient. This is, you know, I become part of their life. They become part of mine. And I think that goes a long way. I think those are the key things that you have to give them the time. Also, some of it is you're going to have to reinforce things later. It's not all when you're talking this, you know, high level stuff of life and death. Sometimes it just doesn't register. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're going to have to go back and answer more questions and be prepared for that. Yeah. I mean, undergirding that, as I listen to you, it's you have to actually care. Yeah. And that's just what I hear in your your tone. I mean, that's why you give out your cell phone number. It's not a gimmick. It's because I actually care about the outcome here. Yeah. That'll communicate through through any words, but it's kind of uh how would you want if it was you or your family member, how would you want that exchange to go? Mm-hmm. And if you get the sense that this position is just detached, you're just another number, you know, mm-hmm. uh, this is too big of a deal to have it be that way. It's gotta matter and you can't fake it. So yep. what I counsel, you know, other medical students and other trainees is you can't convince yourself into doing this as a career. It has to be one of those things where, you know, gee, I can't really see myself doing anything else. Mm-hmm. It's a calling. It's yeah. it's not a job. So, yeah. Well, and and in a really complicated technical profession, I mean, there are some who want people to know how smart they are. But as the saying goes, nobody cares how much you know if they don't know how much you care. Yeah. Which really 
speaks volumes, I think. So we're going to take a quick break here. And then when we come back, I actually want to ask you about failure and complacency. So we'll be right back after this quick break. With this episode's financial wellness tip, I'm Will Coster. Estate planning is often seen as a complex legal process that's only really necessary for the wealthiest of families. And this is simply not true and a misconception that could be disastrous for a family and especially for the heirs left behind. If you haven't heard my personal story of my father dying when I was in high school, take it from me. Estate planning is an extremely important part of your overall financial plan. And like I said earlier, not having documents in place can leave your children or your loved ones left behind exposed to an array of unintended consequences from things like heavy tax bills to legal battles between family members. This financial wellness tip is simply a public service announcement to stop delaying and call a certified attorney to help you map out your estate plan. With this episode's financial wellness tip, I'm Will Coster. So Dr. Brian Lima, we're talking about your journey as son of immigrants from Cuba, your acronym around artificial intelligence and just the the value of hard work and really being genuine in what you do. I find that people attracted to advanced professions, medicine, dentistry, you know, they're, they're high achievers. You got big aspirations, but it also means with big aspirations comes adversity. And so I'm wondering, can you, you just lay it out there? Where have you faced the adversity? Where have you faced failure? And then how do you keep that from just emotionally swamping you or holding you back? It's by the very nature of this field, it's an unavoidable statistical, you know, thing that you're going to have to figure out how you're going to get around and persevere through. As a trainee, you know, as you get graduated levels of responsibility, and so you go as far as you can. Inevitably, what that means is you make mistakes, and so mistakes are unavoidable. And then beyond that, as a full-fledged, you know, surgeon even when you do everything absolutely perfectly, it's just by the book. It's just, everything just went just great. Something else happens. Things that are completely out of your hands, a random stroke, a random, you know, things that just, there was no way that you could have controlled for that. And having to face the family, break the news to them. And again, because of the deep connections I often develop with these families, with these patients, it is very, very hard. It takes a lot out of you. And it's just one of those things that over time, you try not to dwell on your mistakes. These can be very horrifically tragic things. You have to have and build that mindset that it's a growth mindset. Really, this one adverse occurrence is not going to define who you are. It's a one-time thing. And the only way to move forward is to try to glean whatever lesson you can, not dwell on it, have what I like to call selective amnesia in that you're not going to let it simmer there in the back of your head and, and negatively impact you moving forward. You can't live in fear. You can't work in fear. So that takes years. I'm still, you know, I'm in my 40s, mid 40s. It's still something that I wrestle with. It doesn't get easier, but you, 
develop a, almost like an, an automatic protocol. You know, it's a knee-jerk thing. When you start to feel your mind start to veer that way, you're like, well, well let's focus now. Let's get back to the task at hand. So it's a work in progress. Mm. Is there a, was there a time that you look back on, whether it was, I don't know, high school, college, undergrad, you know, training, where you just felt like a failure? You got, you know, your legs knocked out from under you. And you look back and see that as a pivotal point where you, you focus on what was going on between your own two ears and got back up. Sure. I mean, honestly, it's countless times, you know, you, um, whether it's as a brand new doctor, you know, day one you know, of a 10 year training program and you have the 10th year residence, you know, imagine to where you are as a first grader and where you are as a sophomore in high school. And then now extrapolate that to your first year resident, you're one of 10 and you have your 10th year resident reminding you of how little you know, right? And you're managing patients, you're treading water, you have a long list of patients, you're trying to, things are going to be missed, you're going to make mistakes. You know, you can't suture like the wind the first time someone gives you a stitch and you go, you're going to be slow, you're going to make mistakes, you're going to break sutures, you're going to fumble around, right? And you're going to get yelled at, you're going to get reminded of, hey, you're far from where you need to be. And people either crumble under that pressure and say, that's it, I'm throwing in a towel, or they just hunker down and say, okay, more reps. It's all about the reps. You got to get, you know, those reps. You got to, you know, be at that level of discomfort and then push forward. It's only at that border of where your, your capacity meets, you know, what you can accomplish at that current moment is where you get better. And it's humbling, to say the least. But then you do get to the 10th year and you're the one that's finished training and you've accomplished what you set out to do. You're at the top of the mountain and sometimes exhausted at the top of the mountain, right? right. How do you, there's a temptation to, to coast. I think you wrote, you know, complacency is dangerous. Complacency uh, yeah. is the ultimate enemy. It's the heart of war. That's the, the heart of war chapter. Because just when you think you've got it all figured out and you're, you know, you're an autopilot, so to speak, something's going to happen that's going to remind you that, now, hold up a minute now, you don't have this all figured out just yet. It's, you're not in complete control. There's always room for improvement. You're kidding yourself if you think, oh yeah, this is it. I'm hot stuff. I've got this locked down. There's always, technology is evolving. And, you know, my field, incisions get smaller, approaches get better. I have to constantly be, you know, surveying the literature, the studies, what's new, what's out there, what's the next therapy, what's the new device, what's the new technique, and continue upping my game. I owe it to my patients. And so you can't kick your feet up. And that applies not only to medicine, but any field, right? What do you see as one of the biggest symptoms of complacency? Yeah. For somebody who's listening and saying, oh yeah, well, I'm not really complacent. Uh, wait, wait, hold on a second. Have you... Denial. Right? Denial's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> Regardless of what field you're in, you should be reading not only what's going on in your field, but in general. I went through this phase where I was like, you know what? I've read enough. I had to read so much for school and this, that. I don't, you know, people say, oh, do you read for fun? No, I've, I've done enough reading for a couple of lifetimes. But that was wrong, actually. Uh, that was a wrong attitude. It started to materialize in my head when I started to understand that medicine, like, everything else is also a business. And I didn't know how that end of things worked at all. How a hospital keeps the lights on, all that stuff that goes behind the scenes. I didn't know any of it. 
as I started reading, I, my whole all my horizons opened up. I started to understand, hey, there's there's a lot to this. I started understanding, you know, that an entrepreneur is not necessarily some guy in a you know expensive suit in some Wall Street office, you know, you know, brokering some deal. It's it's what I do. It's it's having being innovative, being passionate, having gravitas, being able to lead people. That's what an entrepreneur is. And so I when it dawned on me that I'm an entrepreneur also in my own way, that's when things clicked and I started reading just all the time. If you're not doing that, if you're just kind of an autopilot, nine to five, just watching TV, not that's definitely complacency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Now, my experience in talking with physicians, surgeons, dentists over the years is that certainly the early career, the training is exhausting, difficult. And then there's years where you're getting your legs under you and building the success and things like that. But there often seems to be some inflection point, sometimes in the 40s, sometimes in the 50s, but where the the values or the aspirations shift from, from success to significance. Have you experienced something like that? Does that connect with you and what you've either felt or observed or through your story, kind of a, a success versus significance type? Absolutely. Because I think it takes, it's such a grueling process to persevere through and make it that it's hard to turn that switch off where you're, you know, you can lead a normal civilian life, I like to call it, where you're not constantly in game mode and just ready for the battle. That's something I continue to struggle with, right? It's hard to get stressed about, oh boy, you know, you still need to take the garbage out. And it's like, oh, well, this isn't a life or death issue. Like, how, why am I going to stress? You know, that type of thing. And then as we chatted about before the broadcast, not having your happiness as a human being tied up into your career, 100%. And that's also an easy thing to do, particularly for these very challenging, you know, all the years I had to invest in my 20s, my 30s. It was hard to not fall in that trap. And I sort of did for a little bit there where my happiness as a human being was completely wrapped up in my identity as Brian Lima, the heart surgeon. Who Brian Lima, you know, the normal person, the guy, I had no idea who that was. And I had to rediscover that. And so when you talk about significance versus success, if you define significance by how successful you are in your career, well, then that's going to probably mean you're not going to have a well-balanced home life, family life. And that's really not the way to be. You can't. That's to a point you need that, I would say, killer instinct to get you to a certain point. It's a lot to be able to balance that and know when to turn that off and how to channel things that are above and beyond just who you are in that career mode. Mm-hmm. And what's, I mean, you're in a super demanding subspecialty with a lot of, administrative responsibility, patient responsibility, family. How do you find balance? What's that look like? It's a work in progress. I think I've come a long way, but still not close to where I'd like to be. But I no longer rely on my career to be my sole source of fulfillment and happiness as a human being. That was number one. That did not used to be the case. And I think that's where a major turning point occurred. Now, I'm never going to be a regular nine to five Joe. That's not possible with what I do. I'm kind of an extreme example with what, you know, I can't sign my, you know, patient who I just did heart surgery on today to somebody else. And if they're bleeding, not be the guy that comes back in to take care of the problem. 
that's how I take care of my patients and I'm connected to them. But so it also is a lot to do with who you surround yourself with, who you have as a foundation, who your spouse is, who you're close, you know, can they understand that part of you? So it's a give and take. It's a compromise. It's not for everybody. It really isn't. Some people, you know, it gets a little old after a while having to play second fiddle to your career, right? And so having the judgment to make that a decision and, and be well-informed, you know, I failed, my, you know, my first marriage because of that very reason. Since I didn't have that balance, I was totally 100% committed to training in heart surgery and there was no room in, any, you know, in my life for anything else. And so that's not me anymore. So it's, it's, and some days are better than others. Some weeks are better than others. So you try to compensate for the ebb and flow of, of this job. Yeah. As you talk, I, I think one of the things that I've shared with folks over the years is that when you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. And so when I say yes to, you know, doing another podcast or taking a meeting or when you're asked, especially as someone, you know, in your situation where you're, you're high achieving, you're successful. And so, you know, if you want something done, go ask Dr. Lima, he'll take care of, you know, and there's a stage where you're like, oh, sure, absolutely. Yeah, I'll be on that committee. I'll be on that board. Sure. I, I love having everybody ask me for my opinion. When I'm doing that, I'm saying no to something else, which is, you know, time with spouse or time with kids or time for yourself to think. I've been there, been there, done that. It's hard to, it's hard to broker that balance. It's, it's very, very challenging. Like I said, I think it varies. Sometimes I'm really, really good at it. And sometimes just by the nature, you know, it's sometimes it's feast or famine. All of a sudden I'm up for three days operating. Right. So just go with the flow sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Well, that's why you're a gift to the profession because there are people like me that could never stay up for three days in a row. So <laughs> <laughs> thanks for staying up and staying sharp for three days. So. Brian, yeah. <laughs> for listeners who'd like to just connect with you more, find your book, that sort of thing. How can they track you down? So my website is www.brianlimamd.com and my book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and really anywhere where books are sold. Sounds great. And again, the book is uh, Heart to Beat, Dr. Brian Lima, L-I-M-A is last name. Brian, thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate your passion and your story. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And thank you for being with us today. We got more great episodes of the Prosperous Doc Podcast queued up, ready to roll in the coming weeks. Remember, they come out every Monday. Would love to have your review on whatever listening platform you get your podcast from. And if you have any suggestions or ideas or comments, you're welcome to just reach out and email me directly. It's Shane, S-H-A-N-E at whitecoatwell.com. Thanks so much. We'll see you back here next time. This episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast is over, but you're not alone on your journey. Spa Dameron Tenney has been helping physicians and dentists prosper through financial planning for over 60 years. To connect with us, visit sdtplanning.com today and take your financial wellness to new levels. Join us on the next episode of the Prosperous Doc Podcast.